And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Gateway to the Old West and the most haunted city in the country. Well, today's January the 18th, 18th day of the year. 347 days remain to the year is over with. It's, uh, it's also an interesting date in history. Year 474, seven-year-old Leo II succeeds his maternal grandfather, Leo I, has uh, been Byzantine emperor, or the Byzantine emperor, whichever way you'd like to pronounce it. Um, he died ten months later. Wonder why. Uh, 532, the Nika riots in Constantinople fail. The uh, 1126... Emperor Huizong abdicates the Chinese throne in favor of his son, Emperor Quinzong. Um, 1486, King Henry VII of England marries Elizabeth of York, daughter of Edward IV, who was my ancestor, uniting the House of Lancaster and the House of York. The uh, 1562, Pope Pius IV reopens the Council of Trent for its third and final session. Uh... 1670, something that I investigated when I was in South America. Henry Morgan captures Panama on this date. Uh, Fort San Lorenzo, uh, which was the main fort uh, protecting uh, the the entrance to the Chagres River, uh, was captured and the cannons were thrown into the water. And it was interesting to clamber around on those cannons. Uh, that's also where the Spanish soldiers uh, would swim. Found a lot of uh, Spanish coins. The uh, 1701, Frederick I crowns himself King of Prussia in Königsberg. 1778, James Cook is the first known European to discover the Hawaiian Islands, which he named the Sandwich Islands. The... uh, 1788, the first elements of the first fleet, carrying 736 convicts from Great Britain to Australia, arrive at Botany Bay. That's one way to deal with your uh, criminal problem. The Cubans did the same thing by sending them here. 1806, John Wilhelm Johnson surrenders the Dutch Cape Colony to the British. Uh, 1896, an X-ray generating machine is exhibited for the first time by H.L. Smith. The uh, 1941, British troops launch a general counteroffensive against the Italian East Africa uh, forces. In 1943, the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising. That was the first uprising of Jews in the Warsaw Ghetto. I understand that one young man with a rifle held off the Germans for several weeks. What could they have done if we armed, if they had been armed like we've armed Ukraine? 1945, the liberation of Krakow, Poland, by the Red Army. The uh, 1960, Capital Airlines Flight 20 crashes into a farm in Charles City County, Virginia, kills all 50 on board. That's the third fatal Capital Airlines crash in three years. 1967, Alberto de Salvo, the so-called Boston Stranglers, convicted of numerous crimes, sentenced to life imprisonment. I understand he was murdered by a fellow inmate. Uh, 
1972, members of the Mukti Baini laid down their arms to the government of the newly independent Bangladesh a month after winning the war against the occupying Pakistan army. Let's see, is there anything else of interest? In the 78th European Council of Human Rights finds the United Kingdom's government guilty of mistreating prisoners in Northern Ireland, but it doesn't find them guilty of torture. Uh, 1990, Washington, D.C. Mayor Marion Barry is arrested for drug possession and FBI sting. They got time to do that, but not time to investigate crimes down here against veterans. Um, 2002, the Sierra Leone Civil War. I'm sorry, 1993, Martin Luther King Jr. Day is officially observed for the first time in all 50 U.S. states. You know, the Sierra Leone Civil War is declared over in 2002. Um, 2007, the strongest storm in the U.K. in 17 years kills uh, 14 people, and Germany sees the worst storm since 1999 with 13 deaths. Cyclone Kirill causes at least 44 deaths across 20 countries in Western Europe. Uh, I was in the UK for the strongest storm in 1990. Uh, in fact, uh, in the hotel I was in, uh, even the backup power went out, and all the electronic door locks opened at the same time. It was interesting. Uh, 2008, the uh, Euphoronius crater is unveiled in Rome after being returned to Italy by the Metropolitan Museum of Art. Uh, 2019, an oil pipeline explosion near Trahumilapan, Hidalgo, Mexico, kills 137 people. You know, the uh, people ask me why I talk about historical incidents. And I've always believed if you don't know history, you're doomed to repeat it. And we got doom enough with uh, the clowns we have in Congress. All righty. Yesterday we were talking about uh, Sergeant Stone and some of the things he had seen, and one of which was the uh, what was underneath the Pentagon. He says uh, as he's walking down the hall, uh, his guide. Uh, said, everything is not as real as you see. And then he pushed him, and he fell through a wall, a hidden door. And there was a field table there. And behind that field table was this little guy, about three, three and a half feet tall, uh, similar to the graves that are routinely reported. But there were two men on either side of the table, slightly behind the creature. And he says, as I turned around, I looked right in the eyes of this little guy, and, you know, it's like you're... Seeing it, but everything is being pulled from your mind. He was reading his whole life. Hard to describe what he felt there. Your life up to that point goes by in seconds. He said, I remember going down and grabbing hold of my head like this and falling on the floor. And the next thing I remember, I wake up and I'm back in my friend's office at Fort Meade. When I'm back in Jack's office, they told me nothing happened. I'd been there the whole day. But I knew better. He said he went... Uh, he went as far as to state that there's a interaction between entities and certain government agencies within the U.S. government. 
It says, I won't go far as to state that they are giving us technologies to kill ourselves. They're, they're not along that line. Their purpose in being here is for scientific purposes and humanitarian purposes. He said, we've been very foolish and uh, we've done certain things and we've harmed ourselves. We now realize we've harmed ourselves and we're trying to take corrective action. And that right there is the one thing the ETs are checking on. There's a biosphere that's been damaged. They're not coming here to repair that. They're coming here to say how we handle it. But the government can't be the, the one that shoulders all the responsibility and shoulders all the knowledge and all the understanding. The whole situation is that we have to work in unison as a people, a united people, which is a minor miracle if that takes place. We have to go ahead and start preparing ourselves to where we ultimately will take the giant step to where we're going to be visiting other planets out there in the sol other solar systems. And we have to, once again, I'll use the word grow spiritually as a group of people. People representing mankind on planet Earth. And yet there's some type, and he said he didn't know to what extent there's some type of dialogue that's taking place between our visitors of all species because there's more than one here. And they're talking with the various governments, not just the U.S. government, but the governments of the world. And primarily, these are the more developed nations of the world because at present, spacefaring nations represent the greatest threat to the, the visitors, if you want to call them that. He said another early experience he had was an accidental viewing of something I wasn't supposed to see. He said, we were in a facility, and a friend and I went into a balcony area looking down over the briefing room. And they had a plexiglass window that separated the balcony and what was going on downstairs. You couldn't hear what was being said, but we started to notice they were running a film. And that film shows various types of what we call UFOs today. And it showed various types of creatures, some that looked very much like us, some that looked like us with marked differences. We're not aware of the fact that there were people now up there with us, and they said, uh, what are you guys doing here? And we told them, and they said, well, you know, we're just sitting back here eating our snacks because we didn't want to go to the snack bar. And they said, you need to come with us, you need to come with us now. They pushed them, grabbing them by the neck of the shirt, and pushed us down the stairs. And he said, once we got down the stairs, they pushed us on out the door and into a van. The van was right there waiting, a panel van, where they pushed them in and shut the doors, and then they drove off. We didn't know where they took us, but the location where we finally got out was a one-frame military-style building. Took us in there and put them in a room. The room had the military cots. It had one table with a light. And they're sitting back trying to figure out what, why, what was happening and why was this going on. He said, on the fifth night, I got out and they drove me back to my billets. I reported in and went to bed because I was dead tired and all I wanted to do was sleep. Next morning, which was Saturday, he was woken up by the CQ, the charge of quarters is what they call the, the guy who stays awake all night, allegedly. And he says, I want to see you. Well, he was taken to see two men. One guy was acting like a bad guy, and the other guy went ahead and said, I told you we shouldn't trust him. Let's just take the so-and-so out. Let's just end this. Let's shoot him. That's the guy said, uh, no, no, we'll discuss this. They were playing good guy, bad guy. And he sent the guy that was supposed to be the bad guy out. Um, the one that was supposed to be the bad guy, he went to get some food. Good guy says, listen. You like working with this UFO stuff? And he said, he responded, no, he didn't. And he said, well, you know, you have experience with it. You've had some involvement. 
And he says, and if those were not phony pictures you were looking at in that film, he said, would you like to work with it? Would you like to work with us? And I said, no, I wouldn't like that at all. Eventually, he goes ahead and says, look, you like working with this stuff, and you'll get to work with it, and you get to learn more about it. He says, the whole situation is that by the end of the year, we're going to release everything we know. Now, they didn't do that, of course. But here again, the world is not a safe place. We have to know more from a technological viewpoint, a military standpoint, that potential enemies of this country know. So I'm asking you, work with us. And he said he thought about it, and he said uh, he was young and thought this was something he actually been involved in all his life. It might be fun. So he'd go ahead and learn certain things and answer to the questions he had. He said, I believe that one... Uh, they wanted him in the military, and two, they wanted him involved in this program. Three, they weren't really concerned about if it was uh, some later date he started to talk. They were only concerned that he might be able to prove what he said. If you had some slivers of proof, uh, what impact would that have on the story? But uh, he knew they didn't want him out of the military, and he knew they wanted him to stay in. And he knew they wanted him to go ahead and go to what they referred to as the school. But uh, he never would commit himself to go to what they were referring to as the school because the military has many euphemisms for various programs that uh, no sane person would want to go through. Now, one school would be like the U.S. Army Infantry School where I taught for a year or so. And you're always accidentally hearing things. You really didn't need to know. And there's a bunch of other schools. The question is, what school were they talking about? He was told if you went to the school, it would open up a whole new world for you, a whole new avenue. But it was something he had to agree to, and he had to go ahead and sign specific papers to go to that school. He wasn't prepared to go to that school at that point in time. He'd seen people who were involved with the program that had gone to that school, and their personality changed. He didn't like the idea that by you going there, it made you something special, that made you a prima donna, if you will. That wasn't the way it was supposed to be. He felt that one of the greatest things you can be is a servant, and not vice versa. And those who went to the school seemed to feel that uh, they were somehow better than everyone else. So some of the so some of these people, he didn't like their disposition, he didn't like their attitudes, and he didn't want to become like them. And one of his fears was if he went to the school, it would change him in some way. Now, there are events, recoveries, for example, of E.T. Kraft, but the recoveries are few and far between. And one of the events that took place in 1969 was the recovery of a craft that was a wedge-shaped craft and took place in Indian Town Gap. Now... He knew it was cold, and he believed it to have been in the winter, but there was no snow. They were on a field training exercise, the 96th Civil Affairs Group, and he was part of the, the 96th uh, Civil Affairs Company. He was the NBC non-commissioned officer in charge. They were notified they had an incident involving a downed craft, and they needed to assist in the recovery. And the persons that showed up knew exactly where we were going, and we went to our staging area. From there, we went to another location in Indian Town Gap. Didn't have any problem about civilians or curiosity seekers or anything like that. 
and they did the recovery, and he realized that what he was seeing was not of human origin, and that began to be the eye-opener. When they got there, there was already a man, a, a team set up. Floodlights were always set up around the object, and he was asked to get closer and closer to the object to take a readings of the um, EPD-27, which is a, a little handheld device that lets you see if there's radiation. And he did that and realized he was, what he was seeing was not of earthly origin. Um, he didn't get, want to get too emotional about it, but it made it clear that there are a lot of things going on that we just weren't made aware of. Now, Bentwaters is a very another is another very interesting case. With Bentwaters, they went there to digest some of the information as far as the physical evidence. There was photographs, there was film footage, evidence of a higher than normal background radiation. Not all that high, certainly, but above normal. And they found that there were some abnormalities in the area they referred to as the impact point. They also noticed the trees had been leveled off at the top. It was in late December when they got there, about the 28th. Uh, they gathered up the materials and took them back to Lindsay Air Force Base, all the, which included all the hard evidence they could get, all the documentation that was there. And there were sightings that were picked up on radar. Both the British government and the U.S. government were aware of the sightings. The hard evidence that they had was on orders taken back to Lindsay. And there it was digested to where some type of information uh, can be put out to, to brief uh, NATO uh, SHAPE headquarters. Now, he didn't know who in SHAPE was briefed. He does know that uh, they were required to, to brief the NATO officers. Information was then put in the uh, put with the special courier and went back to an air base close to Washington, D.C. And that material was transferred on to Fort Belvoir, Virginia, headquarters at the time of the U.S. Uh, air Force Special Field Activities Group, Air Force uh, Field Activities Center. They took the, the material and did whatever they did with it and came up with a finalized intelligence product. Now, the reason it went to Lindsay... Air Force Base was because the U.S. Air Force Field Activity Center had detachments in the field. And the closest detachment in the field to Bentwaters would have been the Lindsay Air Force Base. So they got the material. And they were the ones that were charged with safeguarding it until they got back to the U.S. And they were asking questions of the team that had been in the field gathering the material. And they asked hard questions, critical questions. And they were asking technical questions of technical people that were involved. And uh, Stone knew for a fact that some of the radar operators, both British and U.S., were questioned. And some of the people were out there on two different nights, and they were questioned as well. Clearly, um, there was an attempt made to obtain and digest every piece of data that was available. Now, Bentwaters, of course, it was a uh, in the U.K., and then there was the Belgian events in June and July of 1989. They were assessing information, gathering data on the UFO overflights of Belgium. And the UFO, UFOs were also uh, all over Germany. One incident, uh, they're on the border near the Soviet territory. And the Soviets are pretty upset because this was a huge object, triangular shape, about three football fields on either side of the triangle. It flew over what uh, they called uh, no-man's zone. 
as it flew over. Uh, they were all getting jittery. Nobody really knew what it was. It was summer, about August. You could feel your hair standing up on the end. It was more than just getting shivers because of fright or something like that. There was some type of physiological effect taking place as a result of that overflight. Once this incident decided, they put fighters on alert. Notified them we may have a Soviet craft coming across the gap and they were going to intercept it. And the Soviets did the same thing on their side. They went back over to Soviet airspace and they scrambled fighters to try to intercept it. It wasn't traveling fast at all, but on this particular night, nobody had a chance to fire at it. Of course, numerous pictures were taken. Consultation with the Soviet Union. With this going on, everybody was taken in and briefed. People were informed that what they saw was nothing more than a Russian MiG-27 that had strayed across into the area far enough into the no-man's land to actually create a problem and cause some alarm. But those who had seen it knew it was not a MiG-27. They knew exactly what they were looking at. It was a UFO. I mean, you have flashcards issued to you that are silhouettes of the various craft of the Soviet Union and even our own aircraft. So that there's no mistaking what you're looking at. So they knew precisely what it was they were looking at. What they saw was a craft that was of an unusual origin. It was not aerodynamically sound by any means. And when he said it was not aerodynamically sound, it had no means of staying aloft like that without some visible means of aerial support like a helicopter. And it just wasn't there. Perfectly silent, not making any noise, roughly three stories high. One of the incidents that got him a little concerned made him think that I wanted to get out and go back to the family to have some family life. And then they had the incident escalate. It escalated to where the Soviet Union filed an official protest through the Belgian government to the U.S. government stating they were concerned about the Belgian authorities, along with several other countries, uh, letting the U.S. fly stealth aircraft on reconnaissance missions over the Soviet Union. So they notified and discussed it with the Soviet Union, made it clear that it was not a U.S. craft. They briefed at least the Soviet military liaison mission group that this had nothing to do with our involvement in of sending stealth aircraft into their territory. Well, the Soviet Union was alarmed about what was going on. They even alluded to it being a, a U.S. craft. They were reassured it wasn't, and the U.S. reassured the Belgian authorities that it wasn't one of ours. The Belgian authorities had their own UFO sightings. And this was seen on TV. What you don't know about those sightings, there was a uh, tremendous for lack of a better term, cover-up. In other words, there was a movement to keep specific information about these sightings under wraps. And there were some efforts to go ahead and alter the film footage of the, uh, of the radar screens to the point where it showed uh, UFOs going underground, which, of course, it didn't. It was supposed to have gone 600 feet into the earth, and that didn't happen. It was visible the whole time. People saw it. The pilots saw it. The pilot's aircraft locked onto it, but these were things that would create more questions than we were willing to answer. So we decided to keep this out of the press, and we were successful at it. A lot of cover-up has gone on in regard to UFOs. The one I was involved in in South America was, um, I was told, uh, if I wanted to remain an officer, I didn't see anything. And when that's put to you like that, 
your only possible response is, oh yeah, whatever you say. Another case we're involved in was with the Iranian incident of September 19, 1976. Both fighters were taken apart to try to find out if there's any way we could explain what really happened to those fighters, which were having malfunctions at the same time. There was a situation where we had some anomalies picked up out where the sighting was. One of the Air Force pilots saw the UFO go down to the ground. And we recorded these anomalies with audio devices, took film footage of the area, and there were certainly some strange things that showed up on that film. It then took place there at the landing area. Uh, was not uh, completely revealed to everyone involved and Stone knew he didn't have all the information. It wasn't something he had to be involved in so they didn't tell you. He had a need to have a need to know. But whatever took place there had people out there uh, resulted in us having people out there for two or three weeks gathering data. 1986 we fired on a UFO on two occasions, and it took off like nothing happened. In 86, you had the incident where you had 20 or more UFOs flying around Brazilian aircraft, flying rings around them. Now, not more than two dozen UFOs had been retrieved by 1969 when he was briefed first. Um, he was informed that there would only been a couple dozen uh, tops, that there were several in the 40s and the early 50s. To make it perfectly clear about what these events uh, that took place in, it sounds crazy, but our radar wrecked havoc on the ET guidance system, and they had to make adjustments to their guidance system uh, to account for the UFO interference, I mean the uh, radar interference. And bodies, well, we had recovered a number of bodies. Nobody really knows how many. Um... How many crashes have occurred in which we only got debris because the ET uh, came and did their recovery before we got there? We're not really sure how many fall into this category, but certainly it has happened. When they had problems, just like we send out a distress call, they send out a distress call, which is something that a lot of people don't think about. It's a question that's never asked. But here again, we think of them as something intangible, like, a stuffed animal, but they're living, breathing creatures as mortal as you and I. Now, this is important to try to make people understand that this is the case. And he wants to put the, the human factor back into the UFOs. And he says the human factor means these, are, these creatures in the craft are real people. You can call them entities, you can call them creatures, but sometimes you find yourself wondering who are the more real people, them or us. And these are things that really need to be brought out. Uh, you know, the fact that they're just like you and I. And we need to find our similarities, not the differences, and come to an understanding. Well, we were involved in a major engagement in 1970 in one of their uh, bases in Vietnam approximately 10 miles from the Cambodian border. The um, Not a lot of information has been released on that uh, situation, but certainly it was important enough to get uh, the entire chain of command involved all the way up to the White House. 
And some other crashes that I've written about. 1897 was the Aurora, Texas crash. This happened during the Great Airship wave of the late 1800s. It's the legend of a UFO crash and dead aliens survived over a century of debate. Actually, the, the truth of the matter is the dead alien pilots buried in the local cemetery. And uh, local newspapers uh, reported the story in some detail. The city, the city of Aurora actually got historical site status because of the incident. I understand that the tombstone has vanished and attempts to find the body in the cemetery have, have been uh, uh, futile. 1941, the Missouri UFO crash retrieval. We talked about that uh, in an earlier show where the, uh, a reverend was called in to uh, give the last rites to a number of dead aliens found outside the craft. And in 47, of course, was the Roswell incident. 48 was the Aztec crash. And in 53, uh, eyewitnesses were working for a company that had a government contract at a nuclear site in Nevada. And the individual that revealed the information about the crash, craft, one more time, crash, was summoned by his boss on uh, May 21st, 1953 and sent on a secret assignment. When they got to their secret destination, two military uh, light alls illuminated uh, a surreal scene in the late night, pre-dawn skies of the desert. Engineer was amazed to see a disc-shaped craft embedded in the sand. Then in 1965, uh, we had the Kecksburg, Pennsylvania crash. Uh, something came out of the skies of Canada, across Michigan, Ohio, and Pennsylvania, finally crashing into the woods outside the town of Kecksburg. Individual closest to the crash reported it to the local radio station. Uh, Pennsylvania State Police and U.S. military arrived, and everybody was chased off. Then in 1967, there was a crash at Shag Harbor in Nova Scotia. Eyewitnesses reported several unknown objects in the sky, and they crashed into the sea of Shag Harbor. Rescue workers, fearing a plane crash, rushed to the scene under the fine bright yellow foam on the ocean. Several days of uh, search found nothing. Uh, investigators believed the, the object uh, actually was still intact and left the, uh, one more time, left the area. And then I did a book on this next one, The Battle of Los Angeles. It took place in 1942. Um... This was a, a rare occurrence in the annals of ufology. A UFO crash that involved the military accompanied with actual photographic proof. Uh, a giant UFO hovered over the city of L.A. and was actually fired on by a number of um, air defense artillery uh, units. And then there's the... Uh, an incident took place um, where is it da, 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 da. there were a number of sightings uh, all up and down the west coast that were uh, put down to being uh, Japanese spotter planes 
uh, from secret air bases. Now, it is true. Japanese submarines did fire on the, our west coast on several occasions. And there was a UFO uh, shot down uh, south of San Diego that was supposedly recovered by the Navy. The Navy is, um, by all accounts, had a very large uh, research program in regard to the UFOs. Well, we're going to turn our attention at this point to another favorite topic of mine, and that's ghost and hauntings. We're going to start out talking about uh, the history and mystery of Tucson. Um, also known as the Ghost of Tucson. You know, in 1821, Mexico gained independence from Spain. Mexican Occidental state borders extended further north to include the town of Tucson at that time. 1853, the U.S. acquired uh, uh, that area from Mexico in the Gaston Purchase. And it got a strip of land that included Tucson to let it be used to construct a transcontinental railway along a deep southern route and by the Southern Pacific Railroad. Before the capture of Tucson in 1846, a Mormon battalion marched across northern, uh, southern Arizona along the San Pedro River north of Tucson where the Mormon soldiers fought a humorous named Battle of the Bulls. Mormon soldiers encountered wild cattle along the banks of the San Pedro River with several bulls charged the column, tipping over wagons and killing mules and injuring soldiers. In defense, the soldiers shot and killed a member of the wild cattle, and they sarcastically named the encounter the Battle of the Bulls. December 16, 1846, they marched into Tucson. The smaller Mexican garrison of Fort Tucson uh, fled without firing a shot. A brief occupation ensued, and then the Mormons continued their march to the Pacific. In July of 1861, after the American Civil War began, a force of Texas cavalry and Arizona militia under Lieutenant Colonel John Baylor conquered the southern New Mexico territory, including Mesilla and Tucson. August 1st, 1861, uh, the victorious Baylor proclaimed the existence of a Confederate Arizona, which comprised the area defined in the Tucson Convention the year before, with Tucson as its capital. And he appointed himself permanent governor. Now, the proposal to organize the territory was, as a, a separate um, territory was passed by the Confederate Congress in 1862 and proclaimed by President Davis on the uh, February 14, 1862, efforts by the Confederacy to secure control of the region led to the New Mexico campaign. Later in 1862, Bailey was ousted as governor of the territory by Davis, and the Confederate loss at the Battle of Glorieta Pass forced the Confederates to retreat. The following month, a small Confederate picket force defeated a Union cavalry patrol north of Tucson at the Battle of Picacho Pass, and despite the Union retreat, Tucson eventually was captured by the California Column which was, uh, of course, part of the Union forces. Tucson and all of Arizona remained part of the New Mexico Territory until February 24, 1863, when the 
Arizona, Arizona Organic Act passed the Senate forming the Arizona Territory. 1867, a territorial capital was moved to Tucson from Prescott, where it remained until 1877. 1885, the University of Tucson was founded in Tucson, situated out in the country, outside the city limits at the time. Well, during the territorial and early statehood periods, Tucson was Arizona's largest city and commercial and railroad center. Phoenix was uh, the seat of uh, state government beginning in 1889, and agriculture as well. Between 1910 and 20, Phoenix uh, surpassed Tucson in population because that's continued to outpace Tucson in growth. But both Tucson and Phoenix have experienced uh, among the highest growth rates in the U.S. And we've been there for a number of events, and it's a very nice uh, place to live. You know, if you spend time at the University of Arizona, there's lost treasure to be found. In fact, if you know where to look, there's more treasure to be found on the campus of the University of Arizona than just a great education. In fall of 1893, after the weather was just starting to cool in Tucson, Dr. Ambrose Horn arrived at the Territorial University of Arizona and a large cloud of dust kicked up by the Tucson Livery Services wagon with its team of mules in which the professor was riding. The newly elected president, uh, Grover Cleveland, had just appointed Lewis Cameron Hunt, a Civil War veteran, as the 11th, Territo um, 11th Territory of Arizona governor. Fifteen-year-old boys could walk into any of the con uh, Congress Street uh, saloons for a drink. The Kingdom of Hawaii had been overthrown by a group of wealthy U.S. businessmen secretly working for the government. The Apache and Yavapi Wars since ended with the hostels being relocated to reservations or other locations individually into various cities all around the U.S. So as you can see, it was quite an interesting time. I mean, if a 15-year-old boy could walk into a saloon and order a drink and be served, that was interesting. The able doctor's long series of traveling on wood-burning steam-powered locomotives and on stagecoach rides from back east had conferred at least some no-nonsense out-west wisdom into his entire thinking process. And he now knew some of the ways the West really was. Tying his fine white cloth handkerchief around his mouth and nose to filter the dusty, blowing desert sand, he jumped out of the back of the horse-drawn wagon onto the bear-packed territory University of Arizona desert and in front of what was known as the Arizona Territory College of Mines in Tucson. That's now known as Old Maine. Dr. Horn was known in some of the upper entities of uh, U.S. medical profession by the late 1800s as unusually experienced, uh, unusually exceptionally gifted surgeon and medical instructor. After a short period of standing out in the warm sun on the dusty dirt entrance road, the doctor was shown to his new home on the mostly desert and cactusville campus, except for the main buildings located uh, just a few was with just a few sheds and small outbuildings around nearby. The eighteen seventy three stock market crash lasted until eighteen seventy eight and then not so many years later, from ninety two to ninety three in the US, the public experienced just a rampant financial panic. 
in a stifling depression, finally followed by almost complete economic meltdown, including a stock market crash and a run on the banks, which left many people suddenly penniless who had been well off before. Many banks would suddenly, quickly, escort their depositors outside, close the doors, never open again, while the management suddenly and quietly left town during the night as the population slipped. Good doctor lost a part of his own savings, but was not at all in the dire straits of many of the people of the era, many of whom had committed suicide and merely quietly disappeared at night, never to be seen again while their families were sleeping rather than face their family and business associates with the reality of bankruptcy. Dr. Horn's recent employment at the University of Arizona was proving to revitalize his means considerably and rather quickly. But the doctor's memories of the financial crashes Bank failures and public panics he had experienced left the professor with a very leery feeling of banks, and the ones in Tucson were no exception. Night janitors, along with the night owl predisposed students on campus, noted observing what they thought was Dr. Horn on various nightly occasions, digging in and around what was then the many cactus guards located all around the dark, shadowy, unlit 20-acre desert grounds of the college. Given the already well-known eccentricity of both professors and doctors in the late 1800s uh, era, the rumors and the matter of the doctor's nocturnal activities quickly passed through the idle gossip phase and were in time almost forgotten just about as quickly. Then one late stormy night in 1894, as the wind howled through the desert, two members of a football team, both were also members of the same fraternity, were walking across campus after drinking some red-eye whiskey they had purchased at the Bucket of Blood Saloon down along Congress Street area. Tucson's uh, red-eye whiskey in the 1800s often arrived in Tucson in large wooden barrels as a cheaper and always clear-grain alcohol. To make it look like the dark, expensive whiskey variety, the saloon owners would drop a couple of handfuls of rusty nails in the barrels to darken the color of the cleared liquid and within a few hours that would serve and as a very characteristic uh, dark amber whiskey uh, looked just like the expensive whiskey from the east coast and there's always some gullible person willing to go with what they think is an, a, a very expensive drink on the walk back to the college the two football players caught the dark, shadowy shape of a man off in a distance, seemingly bent over in the middle of what was now the University of Arizona's mall area, which at the time was a very large and well-kept cactus garden. As the two students got closer, they could just make out the figure way out in the distance in front of them, and it was unmistakably the esteemed Dr. Ambrose Horn crouched over, looking down at the ground and tamping down some earth with a small hand trowel such as used by the school's gardeners. The whiskey on their breasts and not wanting to suffer demerits to their records, the two fraternity brothers quickly and very wisely veered off and slipped away into the night themselves. Three days later, two students, unable to stand it any longer than one, and waiting on a moonlit night, both then returned to the spot where they had observed the professor mysteriously crouching under the cover of the desert uh, darkness. Ground was still reasonably soft, but where it didn't yield, one of the boys pulled out a small pocket knife and soon found buried about uh, 
12 inches beneath the desert soil, a small leather pouch with a thin lead liner inside. On opening it up, even in the desert darkness, they could both see the unmistakable gleaming shine in their hands. To their amazement, they had found gold in the form of $20, $10, and $5 gold pieces struck by the U.S. Mint. Quickly getting back to their fraternity brothers, two excitingly woke up the rest of them with a very strange, bizarre news of their find. Quickly, they all began devising their plans to secretly search for more of the professor's hidden hordes of gold coins. However, what none of the boys realized was that the mysterious Dr. Horn had indeed witnessed the two young football players dig up and abscond with the leather pouch he'd so carefully buried that night under the cover of darkness. And so what none of the fraternity brothers could begin to possibly imagine was the diabolical, diabolical surprise that the, the good Dr. Horn was now planning for all of them. The very clever doctor bided his time till the week of the annual Tucson Cotillion dance that was one of the most highly popular events of the 1800s, held every year in downtown Tucson at the Ebers Building to introduce the Tucson community's eligible girls from all the most socially elite and wealthy families in the area to the very best and brightest young men from the same social strata than attending University of Arizona. As part of the era's requirements for the male college students to attend such a prominent social event, it was also required that one of the college's own doctors perform a simple health exam. So Dr. Horn carefully made sure he'd be the school's doctor to perform the exams on the young men. And the morning of the exam came with all the most athletic and brightest students of the school soon showing up along with the fraternity brothers and each waited to be seen by the doctor. One local young man patiently sitting in the, the chair was Edward. He wasn't a student. He was the son of a prominent Tucson businessman and a patient of Dr. Horn being treated for um, dipothentic laryngitis and been told to come on that day for his follow-up checkup. Unknowingly, Edward infected all the fraternity brothers with this highly infectious disease that caused those with it to experience laryngitis. Inability to speak, inability to gain an erection, a slight fever, along with vomiting and diarrhea. Subsequently, a small handful of fraternity brothers who did attempt to attend the dance despite their mysterious illnesses only lasted minutes before bolting out the exit doors of the building with dark brown stains suddenly appearing down their legs and on the seats of their white formal pants right down to their socks and shoes. Soon after each payday, the professor was once again burying his pouches of gold and silver coins all over the campus under the cover of darkness. This was, of course, due to his total and complete distrust of the banks. Well, Dr. Horn died suddenly one afternoon of heart failure while teaching a medical class, and although the face University of Arizona campus has changed many, many times over the years since then, only a very few of his many money pouches have ever been found. And the ones found are usually during the results of construction excavations or other projects, with the last one being August of 2010. All the remaining pouches of now very highly valuable gold and silver coins are presumed to still be scattered all over what's now the University of Arizona campus in Tucson, Arizona. Recently, a permanent coin dealer in, on Oracle Road used... Uh, 
considering at various times over the years since that time, the U.S. government's massive melting down of gold and silver coins, and later in the 1930s, the federal government's outright mis- uh, making the possession of gold coins by citizens illegal in the U.S., and the government's melting those coins down, Professor's gold and silver coins will now be of an unbelievable value. Well, the elusive professor's use of a thin lead liner in his pouches probably contributed to not being found in modern times with all the electronic gadgets around, except if the pouches had gotten torn in some way over the years by uh, soil action and ground movement or landscaping projects or excavations. Basically, what it boils down to is somewhere on the University of Arizona campus at Tucson is more hidden wealth than a dozen pirate ships would have. Now, I don't know how much, uh, and it's none of the records show how much Dr. Horn got paid, but if that one pouch had a handful of gold and silver coins, then you're probably looking at each pouch that he buried uh, being worth thousands of dollars. Well, there have been many, many stories of lost and hidden treasure, and we've written about many of them. Now, if you want to read more on the various topics that I talk about, the books that I've written are at um, Amazon, both the hardback as well as the e-books that are now going online. Um... I've written somewhere in the neighborhood of a hundred books, and most of them are going to be uh, in ebook form, available on Amazon. Also at my website, KenHudnall.com. That's K-E-N-H-U-D-N-A-L-L.com. You never know what you're going to find in the pages of a book. Um, also, keep in mind that at the end of the day. An e-book doesn't take up a whole lot of room. For example, my uh, iPad, I probably have 200 books I've downloaded. And the cost of an e-book is, is a fraction of the cost of a hardback book, not to mention of which it doesn't take up a lot of room. Well, we're going to um, cut this show off a little early. I have an appointment I have to keep. So until tomorrow at this time, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show saying have a truly great evening. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.